how it lights my path, how it guides my way. Wow, that's a wonderful, wonderful encouragement. Thank you so much, Ada. I know there are more out there, so we'll give more opportunities in, as weeks go by. But let's turn to the word so we can hear from David. Let's turn to our next section of Luke, Luke chapter 10. If you want to follow on, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and I will read those. And then David's going to come and share. Luke 10, 25 to 37. And a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Thank you, David. I shall pray for you. Lord Jesus, we just are so grateful for David, your servant, Lord. We're so grateful for all that he brings into our congregational life. And we pray now you just anoint him fresh with the flow of your Holy Spirit. And may the words that he speaks to us today be your words to us. And may we walk out and live them as we go from this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start with a testimony. I'm not going to wait till Debbie has the time again. But it's not a recent testimony. It's taking you back to the years 1972, 1973. And I guess many of you weren't even born then. But um, Anne and I, well, I had been working in Kings Lynn for about four to five years. We lived in a small 
village called South Wotton, just outside King's Lynn. And my job had come to an end, and the firm I worked for said, we want you to come back and start working on designs in the London office. And so we tried to sell our house, but we had um, no one offering. We had plenty of people came around and visited it, um, uh, but no one was making any offers whatsoever. And um, it, it got to the stage where I had to start in London and I would travel on the first train Monday morning up to London and go back on Friday night and Anne would stay at home in case any people came. And um, we, in the meantime, were looking for a house and we'd put an offer on a house in Bromley and uh, it had been um, accepted subject to contract. And... Um, so this went on week after week, and then on a Friday night, the lady who owned the house in Bromley wrote and said, phoned us up and said, I've decided to take you off my list. You've been kept me waiting too long. You haven't bought the house, um, and things. And on the Saturday morning, a man came to our house in Kings Lynn, and he said, I'm willing to buy your house at the price you ask for, provided you move out in three weeks. And I said to him, they can't do all the legal things. He said, oh, yes, they can. I've got lawyers who will do the whole thing in three weeks. I'll give you the price you ask, you move out. Saturday morning, I phoned up this lady in Bromley and she said, no means no. I said no to you yesterday and um, it's no, you can't have the house. So we didn't know what to do um, because <laughs> this chap was going to have our house. We'd been trying to sell for ages and hadn't been able to. And he's good. He, we had to get out in three weeks. And um, my brother and his wife, who were both doctors, they were living in Brentwood. And I was talking to him and he said, look, put all your furniture into store and come and live with us until you can buy a house somewhere. And of course, the difference between the price of houses in South Wotton and London was vast. Um, and um, getting worse. And people forget the mortgage rates in those days were not like they are now. They were, I mean, I think when we were first thing, we, we paid 13% interest, and, and it was about 8 to 9% in the, the, the 70s. And uh, so what we did is um, we moved as a family, that's Anne and myself and our four children, and we went and stayed with my brother in Brentwood, and I travelled into London to work. And then at night, Anne would drive our car and meet me at um, Alpington Station or Shortland Station or Beckenham Junction Station, where I'd come from the train in Victoria, and we'd go and look and house hunt. And while we were doing this house hunt, we went to a house in Village Way, and it was a, a widowed lady who invited us in, and she was a Christian. She was called Mrs. Creed, and she, she liked us, and we chatted to her, and she wanted to know about our families. And she said, I'm sorry, I've, I've already sold my house. I've had an offer that I've been accepted, and I, I can't turn them down. But it's very nice talking to you. And um, <clears throat> we heard nothing more. We kept on house hunting, never finding anything we could afford. Um, and... About two to three months later, I got a phone call from the estate agent, and he said, you know there's a house in Village Way that you were interested in? I said, yes. He said, it's on the market again. Would you like to make an offer? 
So I made, I told him, we worked out how much we could possibly afford, and we bought, and we put it forward. And the estate agent said to me, no, she's already had an offer of that, and she's turned it down, that's no good. My brother said to me, David, I'll lend you some money. I said, no, I don't want to get into the thing of owing family money that I may have difficulty paying back. And, um, but because I'd made this offer, he had to put it to the lady. And he put it to the lady, and she said, yes, I'll accept it. And that's where we've lived for the next 50 years. And why did she accept it? Because we talked to her, and she knew we had three young children. Well, we moved, sorry, the testimony hasn't finished yet. We moved into Beckham in probably uh, about March 1973. And um, this was years before we came to Icarus. We used to go to the local Anglican church, and um, it, Anne hadn't started to do any work. She did just start to get some temporary teaching work just before Christmas. And, um, but she was in our household. Um, I know a lot of you women will be very scornful of this, but she did all the control of the cooking and uh, choosing the food and everything like that. And uh, she went round shopping just before Christmas, um, and she was seeing lovely things, but we didn't have the money for, you know. She saw one, you know how they're very good in supermarkets at making things look really appetizing and nice just before Christmas, and if you've got the money to buy them. And she knew we didn't have the money, we didn't have the money, and she went. And then about three to four days before Christmas, a hamper arrived on our doorstep. And we said, we, you've made some mistake. And the chap said, no, no, it's got your name and your address on it. And um, so we opened this hamper, and inside was a letter. And it said, we as a family, and it was anonymous, every year decide, we pray about it, and we decide who needs a hamper. And we decided you need it. The amazing thing was all the things that Anne had seen in the supermarket that she liked were in the hamper. More of a miracle than the hamper itself. Just want to say that God loves us. And um, sometimes we can't see it. But the goodness of God comes over and over and over again. And we've lived in that house now for over 50 years. That this Mrs. Creed, who's long since passed away, um, and she even said to me when I moved into the look of the house, these are all my husband's books. Take whatever you want. Um, and they were, a lot of them were Christian books, and I took some, but I felt uh, I couldn't take as many as I wanted to. But, she, but I, obviously she was very keen. Anyway, it, it's a story of God stepping in, and God does that. The Lord will step in. Now, in the story we've had, a lawyer comes up to Jesus, and in some translations say he was an expert in the law. And he, said, he obviously wonders whether this um, traveling preacher would know the law. He'd spent years studying it, he knew what the law said, and he, he calls Jesus teacher, and he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, inheritances are usually something that you're given, aren't they? So that in some cases, if you have a mother or a father and they die, 
or grandparents and they die, they give you part of their, their goods. It's, it's something you inherit. You, you, know, you do it, you get it by who you are um, rather than that you've earned it. And he, his question is, what shall I do to, I want eternal life from God, what do I need to do to inherit it? And Jesus responds to him, because he's a lawyer, he's really saying to him, you really know the answer to this question. What is the answer? And uh, what does the law say about it? And the lawyer correctly answers, and he gets Old Testament scriptures, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will get eternal life. Just be completely obedient to everything that the law says. Now there's a difference. Um, the lawyer thinks eternal life is like a prize that you win. But he needs to know the difference between the ethics of the law and the ethics of love. He is asking what he needs to do to get this internal life. And throughout the Bible it speaks with one voice. No human being will be justified in God's sight by keeping the works of the law. It's theoretically true, if you could keep every aspect of the law, you would. But it's just impossible to do. You can't do that. You can't, you can live by the law so that you never break one bit of it. And Paul writes about this in Romans too. If the lawyer thought he could do all the demands of the law, he didn't understand how extreme these demands were. And then the lawyer decides to justify himself. He says, well, who is my neighbor, you know? He doesn't, he doesn't ask the question, how can I be a neighbor to someone? He says, who is the neighbor? And this is where Jesus really... Um, <laughs> I was going to say, turns the screw into him, forces him to think. And he tells this story about this man going down um, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jerusalem to Jericho is about 25 miles, 40 kilometers. Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level. And Jericho is quite near the Dead Sea, which is at minus 1,300 feet below sea level. So going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, you've got a, a descent of, if you do the maths, uh, 1,300 plus 2,600, 3,900, no, 2,300, about um, 3,600 feet. Like the equivalent of climbing one of these mountains in Wales that are not quite 4,000 feet. But that's the sort of, except you're going down it all the time. It's a very rough, rocky road with lots of turns in it, and it's a very dangerous road. It's a happy hunting ground for robbers. In the fifth century, that's in the year 400 and odd, 
Jerome, one of the early church fathers, said that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was known as the Red Road or the Bloody Road because so much crime took part. This is 400 years-ish after Jesus. Jerome is saying this road is still highly dangerous. In the 1930s, if you wanted to travel from Jerusalem, not 1930s, sorry, in the 1800s, 19th century I meant to say, it, you, you had to pay safety money to the local sheikh if you wanted to travel from Jerusalem to Jericho. And in 1930s, there was a, a Christian sort of historian explorer who said that he was advised not to travel on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho at night because there was a sheikh called Abu Jula who was adept at holding up cars, robbing travelers and tourists, and escaping to the hills before the police could arrive. Right, so from the time of Jesus to the 1930s, I have to say that in the 1980s, I traveled down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I wasn't robbed. <laughs> but for the previous centuries, it was highly, highly dangerous. And Jesus then tells the story, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves and they left him half dead. And then you've got the characters who, who come along the road, a priest, a Levite, and um, then another, a, a Samaritan. Now, <clears throat> we get a bit mixed up between priests and Levites. But um, Jacob had 12 sons, which formed the 12 tribes of Israel. And his third son was one called Levi. And Levi, the tribe of Levi, had Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Moses' sister in it. Um, and Aaron was made the high priest by Moses. And, and my God. And so if you were to be a priest, you had to be, theoretically, a direct descendant of Aaron. And your responsibility would have been within the temple doing the sacrifices and things like that. But if you were not a direct descendant of Aaron, but just of the tribe of Levi, then your job was also within the temple, something to do with the worship and the looking after the temple and this sort of thing. So the priest was a, they were priest and the Levite, were both Levites, but the priest had to be, and I'm not sure if they kept to these rules, but that was the, the initial plan, that you had to be a direct descendant of um, Aaron and the rest were Levites. And so he says, first of all, a priest comes down and he sees the traveler who's half dead. Now, it's said in the Old Testament that if you touch a dead body, you are unclean for a certain period of time. Now, I guess that was just like a safety precaution because dead bodies might give you diseases, you know, depending on how they died, might have diseases and you might catch them and things. But they were unclean. So the priest could come to this and he'd think... Well, if I, this body who's half dead, he might die. And if I touch him, then I won't be able to do my functions in the temple. 
my sacrifices and things. And so he walks by on the other side. He chooses duty over love. Do my duty. Um, I've got to be available for the sacrifices in the temple. I can't afford to go and touch this man who might die and therefore make me unclean. And then the Levite comes and he's the same sort of thing. He sees this man who's half dead and he thinks, if I touch him, I'll be unclean and then I won't be able to do my work in the temple. And what will I do? It's that sort of thing. It's a sort of, I've got to do my duty rather than act out of compassion and love. And then Jesus really twists it because he says, and then a Samaritan came. Now the Samaritans were the people by and large who lived in Samaria who had been part of the, originally part of the people who left um, when David's kingdom started to break up under people down below. They left off and they went and lived in Samaria. And you remember when in John's gospel, Jesus visits this well and there's this woman there and, um, and she says to him, you know, you Jews don't normally have anything to do with Samaritans. Why you, um, you're asking me for some water. So it, there was a, a, I don't know whether you would say Samaritans were considered beyond the pale for a Jew. And then Jesus tells this story about this Samaritan who sees this traveler and comes and um, goes to him. And then the things that he does. It says he felt compassion. And the word compassion comes from a root of you feel the same pain as the other person. Compassion is a deep thing. It's if you see someone in pain and you're going to him, you feel the same pain. You haven't got the same physical pain, but you feel the pain on an emotional side. And it says this Samaritan, this person who the Jews would not have anything to do with, had compassion for the man. And it says he bandaged his wounds he poured oil and wine into it. And they say uh, the wine was used probably to, um, not quite as a disinfectant, but something to cleanse the wound. And the oil was to mollify the pain. I have no idea whether um, that sort of medicine still works. But, um, and he sets the wounded man on his own donkey and he walks by the side of him. He takes him to an inn where he takes care of him for the night. So irrespective of his business, he's taking care of this man and he leaves money to the innkeeper. Now, it's, it says that he leaves two denarius. It's very hard to translate money from one age into another. But I think he's probably, a denarius was a day's wage for a working man. So if he leaves two days wages, I would think he's, in our terms, he left something like between 100 and 200 pounds with the innkeeper and said to him, um, here's, here's the money, you keep on looking after him and if you need more, when I come back, I'll give you the extra. And 
this was the man who the Jews hated because of who he was as a Samaritan. Not because of who he was as a person, but they wouldn't have anything to do with him. And Jesus asks the lawyer, who was neighbor unto this man? And the lawyer can't say it was the Samaritan. It was too offensive to him to say it was the Samaritan who was a help to him. He says the man who helped him. Can you see just in those, that one phrase, or at least I can see it clearly, but I hope you can see clearly, the fact that he wasn't willing to say it was the Samaritan who helped him, he just said it, it was the man who helped him. We are like this traveler. I discovered this by reading a commentary that was written in 1700, between 1700 and 1710. And um, so I'm cribbing a lot of um, what I'm saying, or cribbing is perhaps the wrong word. I'm making use of <laughs> what was said by somebody who wrote this, what is it, uh, 320 odd years ago. Satan has robbed us and stripped us. He has wounded us and we're more than half dead. The action of Satan on human beings is to wound and to... And we were more than half dead in trespasses and sins, utterly unable to help ourselves, he's saying. That's the thing. And the law of Moses... Sorry... We were without strength. The law of Moses has no compassion on us and it passes by on the other side. But then comes Jesus and he has the compassion to, blind, to bind our bleeding wounds. He pours in not oil and wine but his precious blood. Is infinitely more precious Sorry. Yep. Infinitely more precious than um, oil and water. And he binds us and he puts all the expenses to his account by his death on the cross. And although he was not one of us until he chose to make himself one of us, this demonstrates the love of Jesus has for us and how much we are indebted to him. So this commentator of writing in 1700 is saying this is a portrait, this story is a portrait of what Jesus is doing for ordinary men and women, pouring himself out in order that we might be whole. In the parable we have one wounded man, one traveler who helps. But we as individuals may not have the resources to meet the needs around us. And this is where, because we are the body of Christ, and between us, between us as a church, we have the bandages, the wine, the oil, the resources, the finance for the care and respiration of people, 
of sick people in society. I don't mean medically sick. I'm talking about people who are sick in their spirits and wounded people who surround us. We as the church are meant to be the equivalent of that, um, that, that Samaritan man who steps by the wounded person. And for different people in the church, it'll be different people and it will be, you'll contribute something else and somebody else will contribute something else. And it's as we work as a team together in the church that we see our society being changed into people who become more and more like Jesus. I want to go back to uh, 1973 um, because one of my heroes of the faith died in 1973 in India. He was a man called um, Stanley Johnson. He was E. Stanley Johnson. And he went out as a Methodist uh, missionary, I think, to India in 1907. And he spent nearly all the rest of his life in India till he died. I never met him, um, though I was born in India. Um, and, but he became incredibly influential and um, he was a um, great friend of Mahatma Gandhi in the days when um, India was wanting the British to leave their rule of India and uh, he was a very close friend of Mahatma Gandhi he was a very close friend of Pandit Nuru who became the equivalent of Prime Minister after independence he was a very close friend of Franklin D. Roosevelt. And when Gandhi was assassinated in January 1948, he had been due to meet Stanley Johnson that day. Um, but Stanley, something went wrong and Stanley Johnson couldn't get there and, got, and he just got the news that Gandhi had been assassinated. And so he wrote a biography of his friend Mahatma Gandhi and the person who read this was Dr. Martin Luther King. And having read the biography of Gandhi, he decided he was going to ensure that the American Civil Rights Movement had a non-violence approach to achieve what they wanted. So this man's biography of his friend Gandhi affected the American civil rights movement. And Sandy Johnson, um, he was recommended for a Nobel Prize, but he, he didn't get it. But he was a confidant of um, F.D. Roosevelt, the American president. And before the Second World War, he was um, asked to go out and see if they could try and prevent Japan coming into the Second World War. He wasn't successful in that. But after the Second World War, he went back to Japan and they greeted him with the thing, Apostle of Peace. So he, he achieved an enormous amount going out as a sim, single um, Methodist missionary to India. But one of the stories in his book that always signified a lot to me was that he used to do a lot of preaching. And India, as you will probably know if you know your history of India, it often has a lot of different castes in it, from the, um, oh golly, the untouchables at the bottom, uh, 
right through different levels, and you, it's not easy for you to marry somebody who's not in your caste, uh, you know? If they're a higher caste than you, they won't want to have you, the lower caste. And if you're, you know, it's, it's, it's... I've even seen a recent Indian film where they portray this, you know, that now I don't know whether it still happens, this caste system, but it's, it's quite... But Stanley Johnson used to say that if you follow Jesus, there's no caste system, you know? You are whoever you are, whatever your background, you can be accepted by Jesus. And he, he writes a story that he, some, a couple of Indians came to knock on his door one evening. And they were very poor. They'd got very poor clothes. They had no shoes on. And, and uh, they just came in to speak to him. And um, they said, we heard you said that it um, doesn't matter what caste, how low you are in um, but if you become a Christian, um, you, can, you, you are accepted. And he invited them in and he said, he spent an hour with them talking to them and, and saying, yes, this is absolutely true. Um, and they thanked him very much and they left him. And the next day they came back again. And it turned out they were amongst the wealthiest, highest caste in India. Um, and they had gone to see whether what he was preaching was true. And they asked him if they could become a Christian. And he said he wasn't elated by that. He thought, how easily I could have got it wrong. I could have treated them badly or done that. But it's, it's having that love for people. And that's what this Samaritan had, irrespective of his background or his upbringing, he cared, he had compassion for people. And that's what Jesus calls. It's not a question of do we obey the laws and are we this. It's a question of how can I be a neighbor to somebody else. Okay. Let your living word abide in me so. Surely.